So good morning, everyone. Thank you to the musicians and to Jim and uh, to Joe at the back on sound. Uh, Every week we take these people for granted, but uh, they lead us into the sermon and hopefully prepare our hearts and our mind and our souls for the message that's going to be delivered. I was thinking this morning before we started about just this exact slide. What do you see from where you're looking? When I look down and I see all of you here, I have different memories of each and every one of you. I have sympathetic thoughts of some. I have happy, humorous thoughts of others. I have just care and respect for some. But that's what I see when I look out amongst each and every one of you. When you look back and you see me up here, you see what else is going on up at the front, you certainly see something different. If you were standing here with me, you would not see the things that I see. Why is that? I'm not sure. But I know that in each and every case, we see things differently. And even when we're here, looking at the same view, we see things differently. And I wonder to myself, as I looked out upon this picture, and as you looked back upon me and thought about this phrase, Did any of us look that way? All I thought of was each and every one of you, trying to remember, trying to bring some thought to my mind as to what relates me to you. But I never thought once about what relates me to him. And that's what this is all about. That's what this message is about. If Jesus was right here, out on the street, or sitting with us, or at the mall later on today, would we even recognize him? Would we know that he was someone different? Or would we see something else? And that's what this is all about. You know, we've been talking about this issue for three or four chapters now, about how the people simply did not recognize the Messiah that was before them. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, just a little bit more about that particular issue. So we're going to begin with the question, is this the Messiah? And it's no different today than it was 2,000, 2,500 years ago, 2,700 years ago. Even in the, the days of Abraham and Moses and John the Baptist, each person had a different perspective of what they saw and what they experienced. For the people of Israel, the concept of a Messiah or a Savior uh, was not a new one. And their lives certainly revolved around that covenant and judgment of the Lord. Although they weren't maybe always obedient to it, they were certainly aware of it. But they went on and did their day-by-day routines, just like I just said about looking out at you, not thinking so much about up here, but looking at this level. Think about what we've done here in this assembly for the past almost three years, I guess. I've lost track of time. But we did quite a study on a book called The Story which talked about the upper and lower levels. The upper level of God looking down upon us, guiding us, leading us, and the lower level, us as human beings, as mankind, a bunch of ants scurrying quickly from one place to another, almost seemingly without purpose. But God wants to give us that purpose. And then we selected a book called Believing, I believe, why we believe, that whole 
aspect of, is there a Messiah? Do we believe in a Messiah? And if we do, what does it mean to us? And we studied that for quite some time. And that also spoke about the two levels. But it spoke about the Messiah. What makes him different from us? The people of Israel sought out the Lord regularly. Daily they lived in the shadow of his presence through Abraham, for example. Moses and others. In many ways, we are no different today. We're aware of his teachings, his leading, but yet we're consistently disobedient to him. The Messiah or the Anointed One is a concept that has been put forward almost since the beginning of time. In Deuteronomy 18, 15-19, it was prophesied by Moses himself, who said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I have commanded him. So it was happening way back then. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior. And they were told they were going to get one. Now the Old Testament includes about 60 different prophecies, more than 300 references to the coming of a Messiah or a Savior or an anointed one or whatever you want to refer to him as. And it was through the fulfillment of these prophecies that Israel, aware of God's word, were told that they would be able to recognize the true Messiah when he came and live accordingly. And yet they failed. They failed over and over and over again. Think of why they had to go to Egypt. Think of the trek. Think of the times in the wilderness. Think of how even people like Moses did not want to do God's will, was afraid because he stuttered. He didn't speak very well. Did he trust in the Messiah? Did he think that there was actually going to be a Messiah? Did he think that he was a forerunner to that? He was confused. He failed to see what was before him. Yes, he did what the Lord's bidding was called upon him, but I'm sure that he wasn't totally, totally committed to that. He had questions about what was going on. Jesus himself acknowledged this in John 5:46 by saying, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So this is not a new concept here in John that we're speaking about. The people that are being spoken to in John have heard this story for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And perhaps I shouldn't call it a story. Perhaps I should just call it a foretelling of the truth that is about to come. But although they believe it, although they think that that's what's happening, they just can't get past what's in front of their eyes. Here we have a quote that says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Martin Luther King Jr. This is a passage that he used many, many times in his speeches. Now he was talking about American civil rights and that type of thing. But this is biblical. This is biblical. This actually comes from Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5. Now, he's personalized it a little bit 
But this is basically Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5. It's spoken by a man, but it's also representative of God's desire for this world. It's one that speaks of a great ruler who has unlimited power, limitless foresight, and he will mold and shape the world as he sees fit. Do we believe that? Did the people of that time believe that? If they did, why did they crucify Christ? Why did they not recognize the Messiah that was in front of them? Because he and he alone will judge. Not the Pharisees. Not Moses who was already dead. Not Nicodemus. Not the Romans. He and he alone will judge. He and he alone will reign over all the people. And it's this passage that gave Martin Luther King a different perspective on his life and his choices and made him who he was. Has it made any difference to you? Because these are God's words. Now both Wally and and Ted spent considerable time pointing out how the people of the day didn't see or chose not to see who was right in front of them. And so there are two levels And it's our choice. And this is what I spoke about at the beginning. We talked about the story and we talked about the belief. We talked about sitting here or standing here and looking out and seeing you on this level, while at the same time the Lord is up there looking down from that level to this level. And there is a difference. Do they acknowledge that difference in John's time? Do we acknowledge that difference today? Will people across the street who are in that skateboard park see anything different with us when we leave this building in about an hour and a half? Or are we just like them? You know, it's funny. Despite all the teachings, the prophecies, and the directions through hundreds of years, culminating in this particular situation before John, there is a verse in chapter 7, and that's verse 46, that says, The soldiers were sent to bring Jesus back to the Pharisees. The soldiers. These are not Israelites. These are not disciples, apostles, people of Christ, followers, professed followers. These are not even people who saw the miracles, probably. These are the soldiers of the Roman army, a foreign army. And they say, the officers answered, no man has ever spoken like this man. They saw something different in him. But the very people who should have saw him didn't recognize him. Now that's ironic to me that all of those people who understood the concept of a Messiah, who had seen him do all of these miracles, who had seen his compassion and his meekness and his love for people, did not see that he could be the Messiah. But you know, it was meant to be. Because... Christ had to go to the cross. He knew that. Unfortunately, it was us that sent him. And we need to remind ourselves of that. There's another concept before us, challenged by the apparent inability of the people to recognize the Messiah before them, the person who had lived with them, captivated them. We're actually given the answer to the question repeatedly by that man, the Messiah, to that person called Jesus. He's aware that we don't recognize him. 
He's aware that we haven't grasped what's before us. He's aware of the ineptitude of man in general to grasp the reality of the situation. And he expounds on this in our passage today. He speaks of two levels in the choice that's before us. And I'm going to go through a lot of verses here that we've already talked about. And also verses in the passage that I have today. But I think it's important when you see the culmination at the end of all of these verses, you're going to see that Jesus didn't tell us once. He didn't tell us twice. He didn't tell us three times. I don't know how many times he told us. I never counted them. But it is numerous and over and over in different ways, in different methods. That's why all the parables, that's why all the teachings, and it culminates today in the verses that he gives us. One level is we are born into a sin nature. The other level is based upon love and devotion. And it's a level we can't attain without him. And that's what we have to realize. In this particular chapter, chapter 8, verse 21, he says, You will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Two verses later he says, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 34 he said, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. But we know that Jesus never sinned that he didn't know sin. He knew we were sin, but he didn't know sin. So he talks about being a slave to sin. You know, when you're a slave, you're sort of separate from the group. You're not part of family. Later on, he's going to talk about how we can no longer be slaves, that we are supposed to be part of family. And there's a difference there. Very next verse in 35 he says, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides in the house forever. Think of that. So if you want to remain a slave, you'll never be in his house. Because in his house you will live forever. He is preparing a mansion for you. He is preparing a place for you where you will be forever. You can't have it both ways. Here's that choice. Verse 38 says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. But the picture is different, obviously. He sees something much more than we do. And he goes on to say, and you do the deeds of your father, as I do what my father has asked of me. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. There's a relationship here that we don't have, that we don't understand. And he's trying to make that clear to us, that he came from up there. That yes, he physically came from Bethlehem, from Galilee, but he originally came from up there. He was sent by God. Can you say that you were sent by God? for a reason, for a purpose. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. He's implying that he is different. He hears what God says and he does what God says for him to do. But we don't do it because we don't hear it. So we are at a different level. We hear differently. We see differently. That picture. 
Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. Now that must have been a slap in the face for an awful lot of people. I'm thinking of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, all the people that wanted to put him to death. Even the Roman soldiers, probably. It was a little bit of a slap in the face. And he says in verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he's declaring that he had been there with Abraham. None of the others could do that. We can't do that, but he could do that. That makes him different. Just reflecting on what we just heard, could he have said it any more clearer or any more often? Who he was, what made him different, why you should have been listening to him, why he was the Lord. And as I said before, if he was here this day speaking to you and me, would we have seen the real Messiah before us? I'm not sure. I have a whole bunch of quotes here, and I want us to just go through each and every one of these. And these are from people who we would consider fairly intelligent. And I want you to give consideration to these. Representation of the world, like the world itself, is the work of men. They describe it from their own point of view, from their own lower level, which they confuse with the absolute truth. Simon de Beauvier. Jim? Mahatma Gandhi. Nobody in this world possesses absolute truth. This is God's attribute alone. Relative truth is all we know. Therefore, we can only follow the truth as we see it. Such pursuit of truth cannot lead anyone astray. Following the Lord is exactly what you want to do. Jim? If absolute power corrupts absolutely... Where does that leave God? Answer that. Think about that. Isn't that a little bit of an oxymoron? God can't be corrupted. Is God absolute? Yes. God can't be corrupted. An interesting quote, isn't it, Jim? Absolute truth is not dependent upon public opinion or popularity. Now, what is this truth? It is his gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth. It is the absolute truth. No two ways about it. Jim? So now I want to focus on the third concept. And this is probably where you thought I would have spent all my day talking about verse 58, which says that he is I am. But there's a difference between saying I am and saying, I am. I was thinking as we were talking about this, about the absoluteness of this particular statement, I am. It's not maybe I am. I wish I was. I could be. Think of all the people, and I think of, I think of people in Central America, South America, and other places of the world who name their children Jesus or Jesus, or some format of that. They can say, when we say, what do they call you? They can say, I am called Jesus. I am called Jesus. But there's only one that can say, I am called I am, and leave it at that. And there is the difference. That's an absolute. 
I might be Jesus to something to something to something of some Spanish, you know, lineage that goes back 600 years. But I'm not I am, which doesn't have to be described. Who was before the beginning of time and who will be there after. There is no end to this. It is absolute. Our inability to achieve anything meaningful without the help of one who is absolute is what this is all about. It talks about those two levels. Why should we, why would we listen to this man? If we were there when he made this declaration, why would we listen to him? You know, he was despised by almost everybody. He was meek. He was compassionate. He showed no outward desire to have power or to be in charge or to be above anybody else. He had done miracles that helped other people, but he never did a miracle to help himself. Think about that. He didn't put money in his pocket. He didn't build himself a fancy house. But he did heal others who had hurts and pains. They were different. And he made them equal. They were lower and he raised them up to another level. Maybe not to the level that he wanted them to go to, but he gave them that opportunity. He wanted us to realize that none of us are different. Martin Luther King had another quote, and he was talking about the Americans and how they all got to America in the first place, but this applies to each and every one of us. It says that we all came across the ocean in ships, but we're all in the same boat now, meaning that we're all sinners that none of us is any better than the person sitting beside us. Without God, we are all equally desperate, all equally depraved, all equally sin. Okay, He is the one absolute that can change that. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What a statement. What a statement. This man is the living definition of the word absolute. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, and there is none above him. You know, I could leave it right there and say that's the end of the sermon. Think about that. Think about those items. But I want to say a few words on this subject of absolute, just for a little bit more deeper consideration and maybe some thought later on. I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and I've got to be honest, I don't know when he, I didn't get the date as to when he said it, and I don't know that it's all that important. But it was entitled, The Mighty God. And I just want to read you part of what was said there. Holy Scripture tells us that a man by nature is dead in trespasses and sin. It does not say that he is sick, or that he is faint, or has grown callous and hardened and seared, but it says he is absolutely dead. When the body is dead, it is absolutely powerless. It is unable to do anything for itself or of itself. That is death. And when the soul is dead, it must therefore also be powerless of and for itself. You men shall indeed rise from the grave, pardon me, yet men shall indeed rise from the grave, having new bodies free of blemish and made perfect in his image then perhaps we may also be assured that man's soul, also dead to sin, 
can turn to God and make themselves heirs of heaven, though before they were heirs of wrath. How is this possible? Who makes this opportunity possible? It is the I am, the absolute, the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one. It is because of all the things that he had said, all the things that he had done. That's what makes him able to do these things. The other reason is that he is at both levels. He is up above, but he is also here with us. He was up above and he came down to this level to help us. Now he's gone back up and he wants us to follow. But we can't do it without him. We can't do it without that absoluteness. It's infallible before him and through him. Now our last slide here, Jesus laid out all the reasons for our downfall and our shortcomings. And here it says that the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do absolutely no good. Can do him absolutely no good. Isn't that Christ? Have you ever done this for someone? Benefited someone else at your expense and you get nothing out of it? Christ did that for each and every one of you. He and he alone was capable of doing that. And he was willing to do it for our sakes. It's pretty phenomenal. He is, I am. He is absolute. As we continue our study in John, the benefits of coming to Christ, of knowing Christ, of being obedient and faithful to him, are going to be laid out before us. They're going to become more and more evident. We're going to talk about the vine and the vine maker. We're going to talk about many other different things. And it's all about the benefits of knowing Christ. What you're going to get out of it by coming to him. So you can choose to live and to die as heirs of wrath, as Charles Spurgeon calls it. Or you can be heirs of heaven, as the Lord puts before you. I just want to close with three verses from Isaiah. And this was some time before the words that John put down on paper. But they're all relevant, and they all speak of the same thing. They speak of the concept of two levels. They speak of the concept of choice. They speak of the concept of an I am, of a Messiah, a Messiah that could save us. Chapter 46, 5 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And don't we do that? Do we not lower Christ to our level and make him our equal, sometimes our subordinate? He actually asked that question. And why does he ask that question? Because he is I am. There is nobody above him. There's nobody his equal. And Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. End of conversation. Absolute. I am he. That's the message for today. I hope that you can take something from that and use that concept as we continue to study John because it's a concept that really forms the foundation of our faith and trust in the Lord.
And we want to take that to him. Let's just close in prayer and then we'll ask the music team to come forth and finish for us with the final hymn. Lord, we have spoken much today about the different levels. We have spoken much about mankind and our sin nature. And the only way that we can get out of it, Lord, is because of what your Son did on the cross for us. The absolute nature of Him. I am the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, we are a broken people. We are broken individuals. We need help. We need that absolute power. Lord, none of us here want to die and have our bodies blow away as dust and our souls be diminished forever and lost. We want to be at your side in heaven. We want to be heirs of heaven, not heirs of wrath. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that you have put before us. We know that we have been studying this concept for some two or three years, Lord. We know too, Lord, that we are slow to learn. We are slow to accept. But Lord, we also know that you are a patient God, a loving God, a a God who will not give up. And so for that we are thankful. You give us hope. You give us assurance, Lord, that we can indeed have that which we wish. And Lord, we know that all of those who seek you bring joy to you. And so, Lord, as we depart this day, may we be that light for you. May we bring joy to you in those times and places when everything seems futile. Lord, we just thank you for your Son, for the Holy Spirit, for the love that is sent towards us Every day, every moment, every breath, Lord. And we thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you. David?